some who may uh, frequently be in our children's worship, but uh, we felt like this would be a day that would be important to have those, uh, not the little bitty ones, but the um, three to, or four to third grade, whatever those age group of kids that are normally in children's worship, we felt like it would be an important day to have them in here. This is an important day, and I am uh, delighted that we have uh, two churches, really, two peoples that are gathering today that used to be one people. Um, I'm especially enjoying that for many of you who are acquainted with our context in Greenville and Commerce, that uh, unfortunately we have a history of church splits and church fights. And we, we just can be honest, and I mean, we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but I think the beauty in actually two churches not splitting, two churches or one church beginning and planting another church is really a sweet time to celebrate. And I hope there's a lot more of that. And the uh, excitement at the thought of other churches doing the same and giving birth, just like disciples should have offspring, progeny, replicates, duplicates, churches, I think, should have um, replicates or duplicates or offspring. So it's, it's an important time today. It's also an important time today because we are recognizing two men as elders, uh, one of Crosspoint, Steve Mayo, and one as an elder officially of C3. C3 is the short way of saying Commerce Community Church, so we'll go with C3 this morning. Um, I, I make the mistake sometimes of calling it 3C, but I'm really trying to get that right. But it, it is an important day to recognize these men as elders. If, you, if this is your first opportunity to even engage what an elder is, uh, we're going to call it elders from this point on this morning. But just when you hear elder, if it's new for you, be okay with hearing pastor or overseer. Bishop is also used interchangeably, but we won't call each other bishops. We'll go with just elders. And uh, this morning we are recognizing two men to the positions of elder, and uh, it's a sweet time together. I want to begin with prayer. I want to share with you what I'm going to pray before I pray, because I want you to pray. I want your heart to be engaged in this prayer with me. This sermon is pushing the envelope this morning. It's pushing the envelope not only for what I'm able to communicate in one sitting. Thankfully, it's just one sitting today, not two services. But also, it's pushing the envelope in what you're able to engage Lengthwise, it's about the same. So let me prepare you in case you're wondering, are we going to go till 2 o'clock? I don't know. <laughs> Lengthwise, it's about the same, but in terms of where we're going, it's going to be a journey that you're going to need to engage. If you didn't bring a Bible, man, grab that one in that pew back in front of you. Uh, if some people have two and you see a couple or family without one, pass them one of yours if they don't have one. This is our resource today. We're not sharing funny email. Funny jokes, quippy story sayings. We're not going to do any of that. We're going to climb in neck deep into this word this morning. And we're going to pray for uh, endurance. Let's pray. Lord, what an important time this morning. We are just delighted at the task. We're delighted at the privilege of recognizing two men to the positions of elder. Lord, we are delighted at leadership. We thank you so much for calling out leadership, men that are burdened to be about what's important to you. Lord, I pray this morning that this 
message that we climb into will be as much charge for David and Steve as it is charge for the current elders, as it is equipping and grooming and shaping for elders to be young men that may have an aspiration someday to the position of elder. And Lord, I also pray that in these next few minutes that this will be a time that the people of God will engage what it means to follow, what it means to be led, and how you've interacted and how you've led your people over the ages through ordained, called out, man, leadership. Lord, I also want to pray for Commerce Community Church. We just want to lift them up. We thank you so much for giving birth to a people, for arresting a people with the gospel and giving them also with that a burden for commerce and the surrounding community there. And for a university, Lord, we just beg for your glory in that work. We beg for men that are leading that church, that are arrested by grace, that are needy and dependent on you. Lord, we pray in all that that you will just be glorified. We pray also for a spirit of partnership with the churches in that community, that you will guard them and guard C3 from ever having a spirit of competition. And the same is true for Cross Point here in Greenville. We pray for great things in our sister churches in this community for your glory. Lord, lastly, I want to pray for the little ones who are in here this morning. I pray for divine attentiveness. I pray that they will engage so their parents can engage. Lord, I pray that you will speak in spite of me and through me and that you'll speak to little hearts this morning about what it means to be part of the people of God. We love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kids, I urge you to do the best you can. Parents, if you, uh, if you have a little one in here and you're a little bit nervous about the next few minutes together, that's okay. We understand that kids make noises, although you better not this morning. <laughs> I'm talking to my kids on the front row when I say that. This morning is kind of like a wedding sermon. We won't have David and Steve come up here. But really in terms of what it's like for y'all, it's sort of like a wedding sermon. Sometimes you go to a wedding. Sometimes you're the bride or the groom. Some of you who are married, you know, you've been through that experience. Other times you go to a wedding and you're more of a witness. And you may be married, and in some ways what that wedding, what that ceremony does and the preaching of the Word does is it quickens you to the gravity of your ministry, husband to wife, and what it means to be husband and wife and the picture of the gospel that that is. And then other times you may be a husband and wife to be, and you go to a wedding and you hear a sermon that quickens you to the gravity of what's in store. So as I prayed during the prayer this morning, I really want to connect the dots with y'all before we even engage. This sermon isn't just about David and Steve. It's about those who are currently elders, myself and three other men. We're losing one. It's probably the last Sunday that we'll have Jeff Collins with us. But it's also equipping for young men that the Lord may arrest someday with a burden and a call to be an elder and a leader of the people of God. And then lastly, it's for the people of God because you've got to understand what it means to follow. You've got to know what to expect of God's leadership. And then you also need to know how to pray for God's leadership. So this sermon is not just about David and about Steve. It's about all of us. So I'm hoping and pray toward that uh, end that we'll all engage it. <clears throat> I must admit to you that uh, I began the journey of faith at the age of six 
And the biggest part of my life, turn me down a little bit. I feel like I'm loud, and I'm going to be shouting later. <laughs> so it would really be bad. I must admit that having been a, or begun the journey of faith at the age of six, now cresting 40 years old, that's right, still alive and kicking, I think, that I spent the majority of my life never really being able to piece together the Old Testament and God's redemptive pattern, His story of working with His people over the ages. I thought that kind of what it's like is like a guy, a young guy that gets a job at the movie theater. I mean, that's a sweet job. And a young single guy, high school, gets to work at the movie theater, gets to see all the great movies. And imagine the great movie, this great movie is coming out that you want to see, but that you're so busy. It's the first day it's out. It's spooling all day long, growing over and over and over again. But between tearing tickets and wiping up that foreign substance that's sticky off the floors, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Y'all go to the movies? You know what I'm talking about? And making popcorn that the best you can do is kind of poke your head in the theater over the course of the day and get a little snippet, and get a little snippet. But the problem is that thing's spooling over and over again, so you don't know what's in what order. You don't know how to piece the whole story together. And that's what the Old Testament and the God's redemptive story has been for me forever. And I've kind of taped it together. And I found myself not really understanding God's redemptive character, not really understanding how the gospel all fit together, and it's just been in the context where you piece the story together as it's supposed to go together that you go, whoa, the gospel is awesome. And God's been working out this gospel over the ages. And he's been showing us Christ for, for generations, for thousands of years in story after story when you piece it together. So my goal in these next few minutes <clears throat> is to start with Adam and Eve and to move our way all the way through to the Babylonian exile. Now, when I say Babylonian exile, I realize that some of you might go, oh, yawn, this is going to be a real academic sort of sermon. But I want you to know that at the end of this sermon, I'm going to incorporate and introduce the people of God, you, the current people of God, into this story of the Babylonian exile. But I've got to start with Adam and Eve so you can piece the whole thing together. These guys, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They were booted out of the garden, and they got busy populating the earth. Cain killed Abel, and then Cain is cursed with wandering in Nod. Nod actually means the land of wandering, so he's cursed with wandering apart from God in the land of wandering. Then Cain marries Sis, and then through his line, things went bad real quick. So bad, in fact, that God is so grieved over the wickedness of mankind that he sends a worldwide flood. And this kind of became sort of like a humanity mulligan. It wasn't a mulligan on God's part. It's a mulligan on humanity's part. And things are kind of recreated all over again through the flood. And then one of Noah's sons, a man named Shem, through Shem, came a man named Abram eight generations later. God made Abram a promise to build a people. This man, this man Abram, this is the father in many ways of the Jewish faith. And in many ways, he's our granddaddy. This guy is a key character in the redemptive story. This man, a barren old man, was an unlikely candidate. Seems to be God's modus operandi, David and Steve. Unlikely candidates that God seems to work with. Through this man, he promises to build a people that will number like the stars. And then through Abram, later Abraham, 
God made good on His promise and built a people, and by His design, they populated and multiplied like the stars as slaves in Egypt. Not exactly the design that they probably would have chosen, but God's design. 400 years they cried out, and in God's timing, on God's agenda, with God's glory at stake, He led them from darkness through the violence of the plagues, the last one being the Passover. And it was around 1440 B.C. that they crossed the Red Sea, led by Moses. It's an approximate date. And they wandered around the desert for another 40 years or so, and then about 1400 B.C. they crossed the Jordan and took the Promised Land under Joshua's leadership. And then for about 400 years, the nation of Israel, the people of God, are led by judges. But they wanted to be like their neighbors. And all their neighbors had kings, the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Hittites. And we want a king. So God gave them King Saul in 1020 B.C. And then came King David and King Solomon. And then there's a roller coaster of faithfulness and wickedness by one king after another. And all the while... God-ordained, God-called men are preaching. Elijah preached and prophesied. Elisha preached and prophesied. Then there's Amos. And then there's Isaiah. They preached and Micah preached. And the people became so wretched. This chosen people, this people of God that were born like stars through Abraham. This people became so wicked that God actually had the next prophet, Hosea, marry a prostitute. He wanted him to be a walking illustration of what Israel did with God. I can just imagine Hosea saying, hey God, uh, won't you do that with Micah? Or maybe Amos, you know, he's a, he's a loud cat over there, the shepherd of Tekoa. Why don't you do that with him? But Hosea's life, God's design, Hosea's life was to be a walking illustration of what Israel had done with their neighbors. That they had whored with neighboring lands and with neighboring gods. And while these guys preached, while Amos preached, Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, while these guys preached... Jeremiah wept, and Jeremiah prophesied what would come next. God was going to turn Israel over to darkness. Then in 588 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, surrounded Jerusalem. And over the next two years, while Jerusalem starved to death, Nebuchadnezzar closed in, and then in 586 B.C., he came in, and he took Jerusalem, and he laid waste the temple the centerpiece of the people of God. Most of God's people were led away from their land and marched 1,000 miles to Babylon. They went north and then east all the way over to Babylon. And then once in Babylon, turns out the conditions really weren't that bad physically. They were away from home, but really for the most part things weren't that bad. But there were a few, a few that longed for home. They wrote a song. It's called Psalm 137. Listen to this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. 
That's their musical instruments. We hung them up, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, hey, Israel, people of God, sing us a song. Sing us a song about Yahweh while you guys are over here a thousand miles away from home, all up in Babylon under our heavy hand. Sing us a song. But they couldn't sing. They replied, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. May I not even be able to speak, much less sing, if I can't go home to the promised land. And a few people and a few Israelites, they had this burden and this song. And they sang, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare. That temple there, that wall, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. There's a few yet in Israel that are hungry and eager to go home. And then in 539 B.C., Babylon was defeated by Persia. This is a big deal. Jeremiah prophesied this. A man named Cyrus, king of Persia then, let the exiles go back to Jerusalem and Judah that year. If you... Climbed in, clammed, I don't know, past tense of climb, climbed. If you climbed into Psalm 137 and if you experienced that drama, oh, by the rivers of Babylon, we sit down and we weep because we want to go home. If you can feel that emotion, if you can feel that heartbreak and that homesickness, then you know this was a big deal. We're getting to go home. And then over the next hundred years, bit by bit, those burdened for their homeland, those homesick, trickled home to Judea and to Jerusalem. The book of Ezra tells the story of their return and the rebuilding of the temple. The temple was finished in 515 B.C. Two key guys in the return of the exiles home were a guy named Ezra, who was one of the priests, and a guy named Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to the king. Ezra left Babylon in the seventh year of Artaxerxes in 458 B.C., And then 14 years later, Nehemiah left Babylon for Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. These guys' stories are so intertwined, they should really be told together. That was my plan, but then we really would be here till two. But shepherds, you should know that this shepherd's guide that I send out each week, the shepherd's guide that I send you tonight will be to engage these two books together to engage these two men in their work together to see how God interacted with them and to see how the people were led through them. But it's Ezra's story I want to consider this morning. As I read about this Ezra, I saw eldering all over him. I recognized especially human people following him, sometimes better, sometimes worse. And I also saw the story of the people of God all over this story of Ezra. And I promise you I'll connect the dots in the end. This Ezra is who we're going to engage this morning. His burden was the restoration of God's people to the promised land. Let's go to the book of Ezra. I'm going to begin in chapter 7. 
It's on page 393 of your pew Bible or if you have the English Standard Version. If you don't have the ESV, you're on your own. What I plan to do on these next few minutes, <laughs> what I've been praying about is that you could engage this, this passage and this story. There are times where a message comes up where what it requires is covering volumes of Scripture and reading a passage and then commenting, reading a passage and commenting, reading a passage. And it takes a unique engagement to truly get that. And not everybody can do it because we're so conditioned to television and dancing girls and all kind of things that kind of keep us tuned in. And I don't have any dancing girls and no television for you. But I've got the living, active, powerful, sharp Word of God that we're going to unpack in these next few minutes. But you need to be intentional about engaging it. Chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. Oh, okay. I, it might be Ezra, son of Melvin. I'm glad we're not confused it there. This Ezra, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord the God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. These last couple of months, what we've done, David before Steve, is the elders together have tried to discern, is the hand of the Lord on these men? Is there something in their lives, is there some sort of evidence, some sort of representation that there's an outcome that's greater than them in their family and in other people that they've walked with, other people that they've loved with and lived with and prayed with and taught? And we found that all over the place. We found people with their resumes written on their hearts where they've had an impact on people over the ages or over the years. Ages, maybe in Steve's case. He's a little bit older. I'm kidding. I just turned 40 so I can make old people jokes now. We found people that gave evidence to a real ministry that's taken place and gave evidence to what we believe is the hand of God being on these men. Chapter 7, verse 7. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel. So Ezra wasn't alone when he went back to Jerusalem. And some of the priests and some of the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And he came to Jerusalem, this Ezra, in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. There it is again. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I know of no better description of the job of an elder than what is shared in that last verse. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. If somebody wants to know what I'm doing over the course of the week or what these elders are doing over the course of the week, hopefully what we're doing is we're studying and then we're letting that exposed word invade us and wreck us and invade our homes. And then we teach it. Because if one of those things is out of place, then the whole thing is rendered impotent. Because if you just do it and you teach it, but there's no study, then you can end up with anything. Your best life now. You can end up with all kind of crazy stuff. 
if there's no study behind it. But then if you study it and you do it and you don't teach it, man, I don't know what that is. That's like a doctor having medicine, good medicine, and somebody being sick and the doctor not delivering exactly what that person needs. But then if you study it and you teach it but you haven't done it, then you have no ethos in your preaching. You have no impact. It has not invaded your life, so there's no pathos, passion in your preaching. And there's no passion in your ministry. So all those things have got to go together. The studying, the doing, and the teaching. And if any of those things are missing, mm, you'll be disobedient and you'll be ineffective. Let's look down at chapter 7, verse 25. Let me give you a little bird's eye view of what's happened in the passages that we're not reading. Ezra's going back to Jerusalem. He hasn't gone yet. Okay, let me kind of acquaint you with something that you may not have read recently. Ezra, I'm sure you all spent a lot of time there. Basically, what happens is Ezra's going to go home to Jerusalem. So Artaxerxes is letting him go home. In fact, Artaxerxes actually publishes this letter that's to go out to anybody that Ezra bumps into or anything, that, you know, Ezra needs some resources to go. Here's a letter. And then he issues a decree, and then he issues a charge to Ezra, and this is that charge. Imagine King Artaxerxes looking at Ezra, the king of, in that time, Persia, looking at Ezra and saying these words, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that's in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who, will, who, will, who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. There it is again. The elder teaches. The elder also recognizes leadership and equips them and engages them. More on that later. Now in chapter 7, verse 27, there's a little transfer, a little weird transition where Ezra begins to speak in first person. It's like Ezra giving a first-hand account, an eyewitness account to what's unfolding. And listen to what he says. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, a pagan king, mind you, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty men. I took courage... For the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. One of the things that I think is remarkable about this passage is that Ezra says, I'm courageous. But there's the sense there that he's not courageous in his own ability or his own faculties. His courage comes from God's mighty hand being on him. And the reason is because he viewed his role as an instrument and the elder, I guarantee you will face some things that will involve courage and will involve a mustard confidence that cannot come from yourself and can't come from anything internal. It's got to come from confidence that God's hand is on you and that God is capable. That's where your confidence and your courage has got to come from. Let's look at chapter 8, verse 1. I want to catch you up just on the last verse Ezra says, I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. These are the heads of their father's houses. Now, this is the leading men. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattish. And then there's Zechariah with 150 men. There's Elohoniah with 200 men. Really, I don't know how to say that, but if you say it with confidence, people think you know what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> 
That's what I've learned. They taught me that seminary. Shechaniah, 300 men. Ebed, 50 men. Jeshiah, 70 men. Zebediah, 80 men. Obadiah, 218 men. Shelomith, 160 men. And then there's the sons of Bebi, Zechariah, and with him 28 men. There's Johanan, 110 men. There's Eliphet, Jewel, Shemaiah, Uthiah, Zachar, with 70 men. One of the things that's important here that has something to do with elders is that these guys, this Ezra, knew these guys. He knew not only their names, he knew their daddy's names, and he knew what was, who was going with them on the journey. The elder that thinks he can operate aloof and not walk with his people and not engage his people and know their names and know who's on the journey with them, forget about it. Part of mobilizing leadership is coming alongside men, I believe, or in our case, for those single moms who are trying to lead your family alone, you're a functional shepherd. That the, the elders have to be intentional, have to be intentional about coming alongside men and functional shepherds and equipping them, knowing them, and walking with them. I heard an illustration from somebody at one time that was talking about something being a linchpin. And a linchpin is kind of an antique thing. It was actually used a little, almost like a cotter, cotter pin that was used to connect a wagon to a bunch of horses or a trailer to a tractor. Our replacement for that is a trailer hitch. That's something that we could all be familiar with. And what I've recognized in my little snapshot of eldering is that I have got to teach toward, equip toward, hold accountable the trailer hitches in this body. And when I'm saying trailer hitch, what I mean is that God is the vehicle, the mover. And the trailer is the people of God. And the linchpin, that key ingredient that connects the two, are fathers and functional shepherds for those broken families. So the day and time of a wife walking into a church building with a doily-covered Bible, you know what I'm talking about? The big doily and handles. You've got things sticking out of them, pens, mark, you know, markers behind her ear. And the guy walking in with his hands in his pocket, hey, man, where are we going to lunch? That is inappropriate for the people of God because the people of God are led by daddy. And the proper elder will recognize these families, these genealogies, and they will know them by name and they will engage them and they will equip them. So I urge you, elders, to be intentional about engaging daddy. Let's look at chapter 8, verse 21. <clears throat> Let me catch you up where we are in the story. Ezra's going home with all these fathers and all these families. He's got the decree behind him. He's got the resources that he needs. He's actually got a bunch of accoutrements that are going to go back in the, uh, the temple, a bunch of items for worship. And um, in verse 21, before they actually take off on the journey, they got a little camping trip. And that's what happens here in 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahaba. So they got a little camp out there for a few days. And unfortunately, they're not going to have weenies and... and um, what else do you have? S'mores, because they have a fast going on. That we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him, and the power of His wrath is against all who forsake Him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and He listened to our Entreaty. One of the things that I enjoyed seeing in Ezra right here is that homeboy is needy. 
and he's not afraid to show it. It's obvious that he's thought about asking the king for some protection because you've got to realize he's traveling a thousand miles back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And you can imagine in that day and age when people are killing each other all over the place, that there's ambushes and all kinds of things set up, especially with all that gold that he's traveling with, all that stuff for the temple. And he's thinking, man, I, I can imagine that he's thinking, hey, king, maybe we'll take a little escort, a little army, a little mini, miniature army to go with us and make sure we go there. But the problem is he told the king, we don't need that. We've got Yahweh. We don't need a physical protection from you, Artie. And then here it follows up with him praying for that, with him humbling himself because he is needy. I really believe that in the elder that prayer is a function of need. If you don't pray, fathers, shepherds, families, elders, if you don't pray, it means that you think you don't need him. It means that you think you can navigate life without him. Needy people pray. And the elder has got to be especially needy. Let's look at verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava. The camp out is over on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes. By the way, there's answered prayer. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest. All this stuff that they came back with, all these articles that go back in the temple, or tabernacle, or temple, they go back with them. The first thing they do, they kind of catch their breath for about three days. And then on day four, let's measure it all out make sure it's here. Let's put it in the tabernacle and the temple. Let's see what they do next in verse 35. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. <laughs> they get home. And the first thing they do after kind of catching their breath is not go work on their houses. Not go check on friends to see how they're doing. The first thing they do is let's put the stuff back in the temple and let's get our worship on. It's appropriate for the people of God. All right. Now for the fly and the ointment. Eldering is about studying, doing, teaching. It's about trusting the Lord. It's about mobilizing leadership. It's about praying. But no elders, David and Steve. David, you got a taste of this already. Know that you will have to reckon with hard messages, tough counsel, and difficult decisions. And if you care at all about your people and care at all about the beauty of the bride, you'll have to deal with discipline issues too. It's coming. It happened to Ezra right here in chapter 9. And I believe, David and Steve, that crisis is going to be the true tell not only of your leadership, but also of the followership of the people of God. Let's look at chapter 9 and see what happened. After these things had been done, I mean, they're home, they got their worship on, everything's back in the tabernacle, everybody's glad to be home. You know, they were singing Psalm 137. Oh, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept, but now they're leaping for joy. Everything's great, they get home, and then the officials approached Ezra, and they said, Mmm, Ezra, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they've taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. In verse 3, let's see what Ezra does. He doesn't blow it off. Oh, man, that's no big deal. You know, maybe we just kind of start over from here. 
and just try and kind of be holy and pure from this point on. Listen to what he does. First of all, in verse 3, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak. I pulled hair from my head. I pulled hair from my beard. And I sat appalled. That's what Ezra did. Man, I was thinking about this. This characteristic, this pursuit of holiness, this beard-pulling, cloak-tearing burden for holiness in the people of God has got to be present in the elder. If the elder doesn't really care about that, then the people are in trouble. So, Steve, you've got a beard. David, you need to grow one because you need to have something to pull. That's why a lot of people in ministry have beards. I think you wondered about that. Okay. Chapter 9, verse 4. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness and of the returned exiles gathered around me. This is Ezra, remember, first-hand account. While I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting and with my garment and my cloak torn... I fell upon knees and with patches of hair out of his head and beard. I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities. Ezra didn't marry a foreign wife, did he? No, I don't think so. Listen to what what he says unfolds. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given to the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant And to give us a secure hold within this holy place. That our God may brighten our eyes. And grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. But has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia. To grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God. To repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. There's a danger in ministry. There's a danger in the role of preaching and eldering and teaching. And it's called the sin of Elijah. It's where Elijah thought, hey, I'm the last righteous, faithful one in the whole world. There's nobody else left. And God is to say, no, there isn't Elijah. Look at all these people, all these faithful that I sit out there. All these people that are still there. There's a sin that's prone, that, that, that elders are prone to, I believe, at least I've been prone to, is to think that I'm alone. But this guy, this Ezra, sets the tone. He says, this is our wickedness. He said, the reality is we don't deserve him or his love. Ezra owned the sin of the people. He didn't feel alone in his purity. <laughs> he said, this is our sin. And with Ezra, Steve, And David and current elders and elders-to-be, we must take ownership of the people's sin. And you will experience it if you hadn't experienced it already. There's a severe darkness that goes with the role of elder. Because you've got to deal not only with your own sin, but you've got to deal with everybody else's too. And it can just eat your lunch at times. You want to know how to pray for your elders? Pray that they won't be eaten by the sin of the people. Maybe pull their beard out, but not be eaten. 
It's a heavy weight. But the, one of the beauties, one of the weird beauties, is it's a daily, weekly, monthly tutor of God's grace and mercy. Without these dark escorts, you might begin to believe that we deserve Him. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we've forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants. I want you to pay attention to this passage that I'm reading and try and figure out who Ezra's speaking to. Let me quicken you to what what we're talking about here first. If you're kind of getting tired, you're like, oh, man, this is hard work. Just regroup. (laughs) We're not done yet. We're going to close out this book together. We're going to gnaw on this together. I'm urging you to just regroup. Okay, i got to regroup. Kids, don't be a distraction to your parents. Listen to this. Now, who's, who's Ezra talking to? And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for the evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? And intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped. And as it is today, behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. As I read this passage, verses 10 through 15, I just considered, I'm trying to figure out, it looks like prayer, but it sounds like preaching. And I realized what it is, it's a whole new word, it's preaching. <laughs> it's awesome, because he's pray, praying, but he's praying out loud. And meanwhile, the people are being convicted, and they're changing, and they want to do something about it. So that should be the heart of the elder, that as we preach, we pray. As we pray, we preach. They, they just kind of morph all together, and they go hand in hand. And if we try and preach prayerlessly, then we're just going through the motion. It's got to be all part of it. And then there's chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And then there's Shechaniah. Listen to him. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We've broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this Ezra. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all of these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, Ezra, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. And then Ezra arose and he made that's a strong word. He made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do as has been said. So they took the oath. Elders must hold people accountable for what they've purposed to do. It's probably the hardest part of my call. 
Week by week, I hear men oftentimes make pronouncements and these plans that they want to do, things that they want to do. And it's our call, elders, that if this is a God-ordained thing, to help them follow through, to make them? I don't know. I don't even know how to do that. I've got a lot to learn about this. But this is the elders' call to make sure that the people follow through on what they've purposed to do. And I believe the soil for accountability has got to be a love for the man. And a love for the family. you got to know daddy. you got to know who's traveling on the journey too. Lastly, let's look at chapter 10, verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem. Within the three days, it was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter. Here's some more preaching. And because of the heavy rain, they're also trembling. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to him, You've broken faith and have married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Man, I don't know if you've engaged this story. I hope you have. And you've kind of looked at the dynamics here and you've realized that these exiles that came back before Ezra, that they've married all these Amorites, Amalekites, Jebusites, all these women. And that their identity as the people of God has just kind of melted into the surroundings. If you've engaged that story, then you can imagine the quagmire. That may be a word you hadn't heard before. The soup sandwich that must have been of these marriages with kids and relationships that Ezra had stepped into. It would, have been, it would have been a whole lot easier to just preach a message that said, okay, now, as of this time, don't marry any more foreign women. From this point on, Israel, let's not do this anymore. But he was going for full, wholehearted repentance. And our charge David and Steve and the current elders is not to cater or tickle or please or even to ease. Our charge is to preach the truth in season and out, preach it lovingly yet uncompromisingly. And while we call the people of God to obedience in the same breath, proclaim the grace of God. Our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Oh, oh the high call of obedience coupled with the sweet call of grace. It's got to be the message of the elder. I realize up to this point it's been very elder-centric with David and Steve, and I've been engaging them, but here's the point where it connects to you. Verse 12 of chapter 10. Let's look at how the people respond. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it's a time of heavy rain. We're getting drenched out here. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two. For we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Ezra, while I want to obey your sermon today, it's going to take a little time. (laughs) My life is a severe wreck. We've got some severe sin going on here. Years of compromise. And they say, let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who've taken foreign wives come at appointed times. And with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. And in verse 16, then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, 
three months later, had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. The character of this people as they're engaging this difficult message from Ezra is that, first of all, they answered because they're listening and engaged. Sometimes it's harder than others. But it's work to listen. They're listening and engaged. And the, the picture that they're listening with a loud voice says to me that all the while they're going, Ezra, you're speaking the truth. We just know it. You're not sharing quippy emails or funny stories. That's the truth. That's coming from God's word. We can shout about that. We can trust that that is a a post in the sand. That is the real deal. They also care about the wrath of God. And they also obeyed. That is remarkable. Given the investment and compromise that they had had, likely over nearly a hundred years, they obeyed and sent their foreign wives' way family by family over the course of three months. That is just remarkable. The elders got to preach the hard messages. The people have got to respond. And the elder has got to be gentle with the people. It's a good lesson for me. When I preach it, man, my first few sermons here, you can ask some of early cross point. Man, when people didn't change by 1 o'clock, I was hacked. I was forgetful that it's taken me years to have any sort of change. The Lord is at work in me, but we're prone to being impatient. This was a sweet picture of the people saying, Ezra, just give us some time. This is not something we can accomplish in a rainy afternoon. It's going to take a long time to eradicate this sin from our house. Now, I've got some bad news for the elder, for David and Steve. The book of Ezra, we're not going to read any more Ezra. The book of Ezra trails off with a bunch of names. Just a bunch of names of people and families that had transgressed and intermarried with foreign wives. There's no more mention of Ezra. There's no special song. Ezra song. There's no fanfare. There's no hero song. He eases into obscurity only to be enjoyed by those looking for treasure in their Old Testament. The thing that I want to encourage the elders to realize, both present and upcoming, is over the ages there have been thousands of Ezra's who also had no song and who certainly have no, have no book of their own. Although God's people are charged with a double portion of thanks in your direction, you'll often go long stretches without it, maybe when you need it the most. Now, I will tell you, in regards to Crosspoint, regards to C3, since they have a lot of the DNA of Crosspoint, this is a unique people. It's a remarkable people. And if you have a stretch without thanks and a stretch without encouragement, it'll be rare. Usually you'll feel like the encouragement is so sweet that it'd be almost as if you've died. (laughs) And gone to heaven. That's an inside joke. That most of y'all have been in on. We've been clueless about. I don't suppose, though, that Ezra did it for the thanks. And if you're doing it for the thanks, you're going to be heartbroken. I believe that Ezra did it for the glory of the name of the Lord. He did it for the praise and honor and fame of his Redeemer. And he was spent on God's people for God's glory, not his own. Steve and David, you're working for the heavenly treasure of a C3 people and a Crosspoint people. 
presenting before the King of kings and Lord of lords as a bride adorned for her husband. That must compel us. And that burden must sustain us. I promised you that I was going to escort you in to connect the dots. Just very briefly, you guys have engaged, and I know in a difficult journey through Ezra. What does this obscure time and this obscure people have to do with you? What does this have to do with the church? You must know that God is restoring and building a people as He gathers believers from the four winds. A passage in 1 Peter says this. It says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's building a temple, and He's building a city Block by block, person by person, family by family, as lost sheep hear the shepherd's voice and come into the people of God. That's what the elder has got to be about. This people is found in small gatherings called families and churches. And this people make up a temple and make up a city. And his pattern of drawing his people from Egypt and restoring, in this case, an undeserving people from Babylon is our story. For we are exiles. First Peter also referred to the people that that letter was written to as the elect exiles. That's us. We are exiles in Babylon. It's really by the work of another, although we're just as guilty being Adam. The conditions here in Babylon aren't all that bad. We're left alone for the most part. Nobody's invading our time of worship this morning. But while we're left alone for the most part, we're surrounded by foreign gods. We're surrounded by wicked pursuits and worldly practice. And the reality is it takes a few burdened men to call God's people out and say, let's go home. It takes called out men to say, let's not Build mansions in Babylon. Let's go home and build the city of God. That's what we are to be about. These men in the church are elders, pastors, overseers, called men, burdened and dedicated to the task of readying the bride for Christ's return and building the city of God. We're going to have a time of prayer for these men right now. And um, I'd like to first have Steve come up. Steve, come on up here. And the elders, if I can have the elders come up. Come on up here, Steve, right up front, right here. Right right in the middle. Okay. I've asked Steve Roberts to pray for Steve this morning as we... Um, Appoint him and ordain him. You'll be ordained to the gospel ministry. You can marry and bury, which is kind of cool. But cooler than that is building the people of God, building the city of God. It's a privilege. Let's pray, Steve.